Hey, Next on the Teen Nation, thanks for tuning into this segment of the show. I really appreciate all your support. If you're enjoying the show, please go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for us in their Hot 50 list. You'll see a tab to vote right there on their homepage. Stay up to date with our guest schedule by going online to nextonthetea.net. I really appreciate you. Enjoy the segment. Okay, now back in Next on the Tee with me is Top 100 instructor Jonathan Yarwood. Let me remind you about Jonathan's background. He spent 10 years as an elite golf coach at the David Ledbetter Golf Academy, followed by a year as the Director of Instruction at the Ritz-Carlton in Sarasota, Florida. He then became the Director of Instruction at the Concession Club designed by Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicklaus. He was recruited then to head up a new golf initiative at Loughborough University to create a state-of-the-art biomechanics service. He founded his own golf academy in 2007. He was voted a UK PGA Master Professional in 2011. He was also voted a top 20 teacher under 40 in 2006 and ranked in the best teachers in the state of Florida for over 10 years. He then moved over to South Carolina and ranked as a top instructor there by Golf Digest back in 2017. He coached Michael Campbell to the 2005 U.S. Open Championship. And folks, the amount of daily free content that Jonathan puts out over social media is absolutely amazing. And I'm very excited to have him back with me again today here on Next on the T. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I appreciate being on. Geez, I sound old with all those places I've been and things I've done. That is for sure. It's been a long and checkered career. <laughs> <laughs> you have certainly achieved a great deal of success over, over your career. Well-deserved, as a matter of fact. Um, I want to start off our time, just like I almost ended it there in your intro. You do more for amateur golfers like me every day, by the way, of free tips on social media, probably more than anybody out there. Talk about why you do that. Well, I just uh, I like to kind of help people, really. And, um, you know, it's probably the easiest way to do it. So, so uh, you know, it's an amazing pipeline, isn't it? It's a, a modern phenomenon. You know, the, the Internet and the social media is the, the, the best and the worst of society, really. And hopefully uh, I provide some of the, the good side of it. Um, and I just, you know, I put, I put movies together. I put some interesting things together. I think hopefully the, the feedback seems to be pretty good from it. Um, just to kind of dispel a lot of myths as well. And, um, you know, there's a lot of myths perpetuated, which really, you know, really perpetuates people's, uh, uh, uh bad play, really. So if I can make a little contribution here and there, and, um, you know, I'm quite happy to, to spread the word and improve people. Um, you know, obviously I also do online lessons uh, on social media as well uh, through my site, jonathanyold.com. And I mean, they've taken off like you just cannot believe. I mean, that's a big part of my day now, um, is, is online lessons and the feedback again and the results have even staggered me. I mean, some of the improvements people have made, not just in their swing, but in their scores are remarkable. I mean, I've got a file on my phone of feedback uh, from people and, oh yeah, I shot two under par, never broken 80 and, you know, all these sort of things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a coach. I'm in the business of helping people and helping people enjoy our game and um, helping uh, grow the game in, in my small little corner of the, of the, of the internet. And, uh, you know, if I can do that on social media, I can do that online, I can do that in person, I can do that on the tour or whatever it is, um, I'm happy to contribute. And Jonathan, as you mentioned, do that on tour and and the best and worst of social media. I know you work with Michael Campbell. You helped him to the 2005 U.S. Open. 
And he's a guy that uh, I don't think it's the right amount of appreciation for what he's done over the course of his career. I've sort of been disappointed at some of the things that I've read on social media. Yeah. And Michael is a guy that not only won that 2005 U.S. Open, but he won seven times on the European Tour, seven more times on the Australia-Asian Tour. It's not like he was a one-hit wonder. Talk about Michael's career. Uh, well, I tell you what, I don't get upset about many things, but um, a writer from a well-known magazine wrote quite a derogatory um, article about him, which is probably one of the things you're referencing. And I, I was really annoyed at that. But, you know, it's, it's it, it, you can't, number one, you can't fluke a major, okay? It's impossible. You might be hanging out in the background a little bit and come in from the background, but you still want it. You still hung around. You still played great golf to be there. But it's so naive of the writer and the critic to to kind of look at a major like it's you know they're playing their local you know monthly competition or something i mean the demands of a major are absolutely incredible you literally can't fluke it when someone wins it um uh you know the, 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 they either have one reaction or the other or they can either deal with it or they can't which is why you've got a history of players like michael who, who kind of couldn't really deal with it when you look at it and there's a history of players who kick on but if you actually watch how he played in that tournament i mean he faced tiger down in his prime not like a waning tiger in his prime. That was in an era I spent a lot of time on tour. And he literally had a presence about him, Tiger. And literally the players were almost frightened of him. It was palpable when he came near the range. And people just used to watch him. I mean, he won Pebble Beach by like 19 under par or so. He won it like by 20 shots not, not long before. He was a dominant force. And, you know, I remember on the 15th hole of the last round there, which is probably the most significant shot I think Michael's ever played. I coached him for 15 years. Um, you know, he stood over a shot, six iron, and, and, they, and, and there's a massive Tiger roar ahead. So Tiger's making a surge. And uh, he backed off the shot, got back into the shot, and hit it to about 12 feet. And his swing was so good. I've got it on my phone. I've got it on my computer. And I just thought, well, we've built pop, a, a bulletproof golf swing there. And I, I think uh, it was a very proud moment for me as a teacher and a coach. And, I mean, the guy swung it so good all his career. Um, you know, he had... A lot of fans, especially on tour, about how he went around his business. Yes, he was inconsistent. He was a little bit, you know, kind of up and down uh, with his play, um, mainly because of his driver. His driver, because he was such a compressor of the ball and such a great iron striker, his uh, his driver was kind of a little bit of his nemesis through his career, really. If he drove it well, he usually played well. But a great all-round player, a great guy, and definitely doesn't deserve the, uh, you know, the worst player to win a major moniker. I mean, there is no such thing as, as a worst, ma- worst player to win a major. You, you know, all the critics sat on the couch saying that. You go and play a major and see if you can break 90, because I don't think you will. And then, as you alluded to earlier, the guy's won 15 times around the world, right? 15, one five. That is a good career. You know, he's made God knows how many millions of dollars. Um, and, and, and he's done it in a very humble, very, very nice way. And he's such a great guy. He's from a, a, a amazing place in New Zealand. He grew up on a golf course where, you know, it's just a nine hole golf course, very poor background. You know, he used to tee the ball up on sheep, uh, sheep dung because they're sheep on the golf course. Um, and he's from a, an indigenous population of probably two million people. And, uh, he, he was the talisman for a country. He was the talisman for a nation. And, um, you know, I think he, he did absolutely incredibly. And, uh, you know, how you can derive that, I'll, I'll never know. It's just a lack of understanding of, of, of actual golf. And let's say I've been on tour for, well, 30 years or so. And, um, you know, you understand the demands of a major compared to the other tournaments, especially around someone like Pinehurst. And as I said, 
you know, you, you can't fluke a major. Yes, there's winners who, you, you know, you could say they're a flash in the pan, but he's not one of them. I mean, you can't win 15 times, uh, times around the world either, um, unless you're a bloody good player. So he gets a lot of respect on tour, but some of these, you know, these pundits who just want to get some clickbait going, um, you know, they, 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 I think they need to uh, just uh, have a little reality check in there. Jonathan, talking about majors, you worked at the concession club, uh, a place where a good friend of the, uh, this show, Tony Jacklin, uh, has been wonderful over the years being a part of us. Um, he obviously joined forces with Jack Nicholas in honor of their Ryder Cup match to create that golf course. Did you get to spend some time with Mr. Jacklin and Mr. Nicholas over the course of the time that you were there? And if so, what was that like? Well, obviously, uh, it's an incredible facility, and I don't think there's a better better course, really. Um, it's a great honour to be there. I still go back there um, to, to work with uh, Nelly Corder back there. So, um, you know, I really enjoyed my visits there. But, yeah, I spent a lot of time with Tony Jackman. He was obviously from the country I'm from. He's, he's actually from about 30 miles where I'm from originally, so he had a lot to talk about. Um, you know, I used to go to his house, and his wife, Astrid, would make, make a proper British Sunday dinner, and so... Um, you know, I've got tons of, spent tons of time and I've coached his son for a while as well. And, uh, you know, you can just have respect for, for Tony for what he's done for the game and what, you know, what he achieved. A, a trailblazer, wasn't he? An, an incredible man, incredible person, um, incredible life he's had as well. When you actually look at it, if you look at, go back through history and look at the internet, some of the places he was. I mean, he's literally the Arnold Palmer of European golf, really. Um, you know, good looking guy, charismatic. And he's from nothing, and he he came good, and you know those two majors, what an, what an achievement! But you know what what a great collaboration at the concession there, because I think they saw it. Obviously, it's well known now on TV, but it's a hidden gem for quite a while, that thing. Uh, and it's great to see it so built out and doing so well. And um, yeah, you, you can. I just used to sit and talk to Tony in the academy building, and you know pick his brains a little bit. And you know, it's from an era of. You know, find it in the dirt era rather than now. We kind of, we, we know, we know the code a little bit more now. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, 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 as a coach, as a teacher, as a historian, as a lover of the game, you, you can't help but, but listen to these people who've been there and done it rather than the people sat on the sidelines and the critics sat on the couch. You know, I'm interested in the guy who's been in the arena, who knows what it takes, who can come down the last hole, hit you a decent shot under the gun. Um, you know, and, and then could kick on with their career. And I met uh, Mr. Nicholas there as well, um, once as well. And uh, obviously that's a huge privilege as well. Didn't spend much time with him. I, um, I go to the Bears Club a little bit, um, which is his place on the other side there, which is again an incredible place. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was talking to him about the greens and it was quite an interesting comment he said. I mean, obviously the greens are very complicated at, um, the concession. I mean, with Paul Azinger said they were probably as complicated or more complicated than Augusta. Um, which is the, you know, one of the charms of the place. Um, but he's, uh, Mr. Nicholas said, you know, th those greens, uh, the people will build more courses with complex greens like that in the future because it's a defense against length. And I thought that was a very interesting comment and, and an intelligent comment as well. Uh, you know, you're going to negate length with hard putting <laughs> is kind of what he's saying. And obviously you have to be ultra accurate. Um, yeah. So. I, I've got some actual treasured possessions as well that, that Tony Jefflin made for me that I still have to this day. He's a, people don't know in the summer in Florida, it gets hot and sticky and, you know, you don't really want to go out and do much, but he's got incredible skills of, of what's called marquetry and woodwork. So, you know, he, he did me a photo for my 40th birthday of, of myself and made in, in layers of wood and framed it and signed it and gave it to me. And, you know, I treasure that thing and it made a, 
a salt and, and, and pepper shaker for my, my daughter. Uh, my daughter is, and wrote on the bottom his name and Terry Jacklin and they didn't really kind of know who he was because they're only young and then they researched it and they're like, oh wow. So we all treasure this stuff. You know, it's, it's one of the great privileges of, of being in, in my position as a coach and teacher. You get to meet your heroes, you get to meet people you've got a huge respect for and you get to see behind the curtain and uh, it's a great privilege and a great honor. And Jonathan, at the beginning of that story, you talked about spending time with Nellie Corda. You've done some work with uh, the Corda sisters. They've had a huge year and great success, and they're very talented. Um, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I've been helping uh, both of them for a while now, and yeah, I'm I'm just a consultant really. They're, they're incredibly talented, you should say. I've kind of helped them out um, in various ways. Um, amazing family. Sporting family, it's, you know, it's really driven uh, by the amazing father and mother who who, who create, uh, you know, a really good uh, foundation for the whole family. And they're probably the most successful family, uh, sporting family I can think of, really. And you know, great girls, amazing ability, and it's been great to be a very small part of uh, of their success this year. And uh, I hope they can continue to do so. And Jonathan, getting back to Tony Jacklin, and he was obviously a very successful captain of the European Ryder Cup team. Uh, prior to him, I mean, the U.S. was regularly dominant in the Ryder Cup, you know, winning margins like 18 and a half to nine and a half, 17 to 11. Uh, and then Mr. Jacklin becomes the captain and insists on some better conditions for the European team, things yeah. like private flights and better accommodations and uniforms, things of that nature, and then leads them to three straight victories, which really completely flipped who was dominant in the Ryder Cup matches. Did you get a chance to talk to him about those experiences? I did a little bit. Yeah, I did. And also Paul Azinger, who was a member of the concession as well, I used to talk to him a little bit um, about his, uh, how he did it, which I thought was a fascinating approach, a little bit more um, of a kind of modern psychology approach to some extent uh, with Paul. But, um, yeah, you know, when you look at it historically, he did usher in a new era, didn't he? Again, a trailblazer, not just as a player, but as a, as a, as a captain. Um, and I think he dispelled some of the, the fear of, of playing the mighty Americans. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at it, I think there's a, there's a, there's an extra man in the European team every time they play. You know, I heard Rory McElroy uh, say uh, to the girls at the Solheim, you know, there's nothing better than beating the Americans, especially on home soil. So there's still that chip on the shoulder of the Europeans, that underdog, even though they're not, there's that underdog, we want to beat the mighty American kind of thing. Not that they hate Americans, they live here, et cetera. Uh, but that's, that's kind of one of the big drivers of the whole thing, I think. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's a, a radically uh, new approach brought in by Tony and, and that's continued. You know, the uniform's pretty normal now. The private jets are all normal. You know, it's, it's a, it's a big, uh, a big thing. But I think, you know, the, the Europeans come together. I mean, obviously, a lot of the pundits talk about all oh, the stroke play stuff and all the stats for this and stats for that. Stats mean absolutely nothing or form means nothing whatsoever in the Ryder Cup. Zero. It's all about chemistry. It's all about coming together as a team. It's all about bonding. And I just always wonder if um, the... Um, the, the, the sports we play in Europe and, and England in particular come into play a little bit. Like we, we play soccer, soccer or football a lot, um, uh, growing up. We do quite a lot of team sports at school and we, we can kind of come together and watch, you know, the national team play soccer and everyone like really, you know, gets together and 
there's kind of that bonding mentality uh, w- within the team uh, combined with that, um, you know, the will to, to, to be America, really. So, and again, no disrespect to if I've become an American citizen. I love America. I don't think there's any disrespect to them. It's just a competitive thing. And then you, on the other hand, you know, you can't dispel an American team. They're brilliant. I mean, every player is a, is a phenomenal player on both teams. Um, but I think it's just a matter of, you know, maybe the, the American players might be a little bit more corporate. They might be a little bit more, uh, individualized because of the mentality they have to have on that tour. Um, I don't know. I think it's a cultural thing at the end of the day is the, is the difference. Doesn't mean either team, team can't win. They can. Of course they can. But it's all about the captains getting them together, pairing them properly. It's all about, you know, there's a bit of science behind the pairings of both captains. Now, I just read this morning that Thomas Bjorn's employed some stat guys to look at who goes best with which person on, on which course and blah, blah, blah. So there's a modern approach on both both ends. You know, there's no stone unturned. And it's just going to be a great competition. And I just hope it's played in a great spirit. I just posted something on, uh, reposted something on, on Twitter where Rory McIlroy holds a massive putt on top of Patrick Reed and then Patrick goes absolutely ballistic. And then Patrick Reed holds the putt straight on top of him and goes even more ballistic. But then Rory waits him at the side of the green, you know, gives him a little fist pump and, and pats him on the back. That's the sort of spirit we want. You know, it doesn't want to go back to like the war on the shore days, which I thought was no, there was no winners in that one. Um, so I think, you know, I hope it's played in great spirit. I hope, you know, I, I, I can pull for both sides really because I'm a US citizen and obviously born in Britain. So I can't really lose, but. Um, I think, again, the game of golf is a winner. Like this, with the Solheim Cup, the game of golf was a winner. And that's what it's all about, really. I think it's going to be a, spe- a spectacle. I think it's going to be very interesting who's paired with who. I think it's going to be very interesting for who reacts well and who doesn't. And and uh, hopefully, again, it's played in the spirit it should be played in. Jonathan, I want to expand on one of the things that, uh, that you mentioned along the way in that answer. You know, the... Players on tour are like a one-person corporation, if you will. They're a business. For the majority of the year, it's sort of all about them and how they play. Obviously, they have coaches and, and, and teams around them, but it's really all they are all the focus. And then for one week out of the year for the U.S., because we play the President's Cup and then the Ryder Cup, but and every other year for, for the European team, it becomes about team and not about me. Is that a, uh, a, a transition? And you mentioned how a lot of the folks in, on the European teams and whatnot are more looking towards team events and it's all about country team and, and with soccer and some of the other things. But is that, is that something that you think the U.S. players struggle a little bit more with is the transition from being all about I and me for the majority of the year to one week out of the year becomes about team and we're just not quite as good at it as the European team is. Well, possibly. Um, you know, you could kind of say that maybe. But I think maybe it's the actual format of the game. You know, when you look at it, it's match play. In England and Europe, we play tons of match play growing up. You know, a lot of the major amateur championships are match play. Um, you know, so uh, it might be the match play format. You know, they used to be, you know, having the, 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 the single mentality. I mean, when you look at it, there's a lot of points in the foursome. There's a lot of points in the four balls. It's not just about singles, is it? And, you know, that's a skill and an art. And if you're only playing it every now and then, you know, there, there might be a bit of a lottery how it's going to come together. Um, you know, so I don't know. Maybe that's part of the equation. Maybe the format's part of the equation. 
But again, don't rule out that um, America are going to do poorly because they're not. It's like we're riding them off. They're not. Anyone can win them. I mean, it's going to be a fun event and they're both uh, as capable as each other. And I don't, you know, maybe the Team Chaos 3 could be great. You know, we heard the comment from Brooks in Golf Digest there, uh, which either is going to help them or it's going to hurt them. You don't know. They might react to it and, and he might react to it and go, guys, that's out of context. Let's go. You know, so, you know, you can't really believe everything you, you read uh, in the media. And, it, you know, it might spur them on. It might it might push them forward. Um, I don't know. But I think it's definitely something to do with the format that, that you either take to it or you don't. And you flow with it or you don't. And I also, you make a great point there, I thought, um, that the, the, the American side, they play basically every year a team event. You know, and so they've got to play against the rest of the world. And so, you know, to me, that's a lot of, a lot of, you know, having to get the rah, rah, rah going. Um, you know, it's hard. Maybe if it's every two years, it's more of a big deal. You've got more, more, more fuel in the fire. You know, if you, let's say, you know, if they didn't play the President's Cup and they only played the Ryder Cup every couple of years like Europe, that would be, you could say, possibly a fairer contest, wouldn't it? You'd, you'd get more up for it, I'd have thought. It must be hard getting up for it every single year in two different formats. Um, so I think that's a valid point there. Jonathan, switching gears, and, and earlier this year in one of the tweets that you put out, you said tour players have an internal protection mechanism. Mistakes are everything other than them. Understandable with the performance pressure that they're under. They self-protect. Talk about what you mean by that, and is that something we should all do, as opposed to the negative self-talk that we do to ourselves when we're out there playing around? Yeah, I mean, you know, they have to be mentally bulletproof, don't they? You know, everything, any mistakes, anything goes wrong, you know, the, the, the blame goes around the camp. You know, it starts off with the caddy, then it goes to the coach, and then it ends up with the wife, <laughs> and then it, it might eventually go to the player. So, you know, they 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 have to do that. They have to have a, a self-defense protection mechanism because they're playing the toughest game on earth. They're under the most pressure. They're under the most scrutiny. You and I don't do a job where, if you hit a poor shot, you know, 8 million people are going to see it and then another 7 million are going to chastise you on social media. <laughs> you know, if my, uh, if I don't teach well today, no one's going to know about it. But, um, you know, so they're under a lot of pressure, a lot of scrutiny. You know, they're, 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 they're micro, um, their lives are micromanaged, aren't they, to some extent. So you have to have a defense mechanism. You have to have some armor uh, to deal with the pressure. And, uh, you know, that's that's just how they are. And, it, you know, it wouldn't hurt people. I mean, tour players have what I call a selective memory. So, you know, they don't they don't remember certain shots that are poor, but they remember all the good ones. And that's not a bad trait to have for a lot of, you know, amateur players. You can say, hey, I'm just going to go out of there and be more robust and, and think more positive and, and, you know, get in my little bubble and, uh, you know, get into my routine. And, you know, if they're a poor one, I'm just going to forget it and move on because you can't change it. So... Yeah, you can adopt some of those things, but, uh, you know, I just think a lot of it is, is a protection mechanism against everything that's going on around them. And I respect any single person that plays uh, any sport for a living, especially golf. Golf's the most demanding and challenging of them all. Um, you know, the credit goes to anyone in the arena, in my view, not the cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So, um, you know, I think it's important that you, you, you always uh, respect them. Um, but, you know, they do live in, in a kind of yes world as well. Again, understandably. You know, I, I remember a joke someone once told me, he said, how many tour players does it take to change a light bulb? And uh, the answer was one, because the whole world revolves around them. 
So, um, <laughs> you, you know, that's kind, of, that's, that's kind of how it is, you know, because they are the star of the show, as you say. I, you know, I've, all I've ever been is a bit part player and very happy with that role. You know, as I say, I, people, I don't publicize a lot of people I work with anymore. And I'm happy with that too. Um, you know, they're the stars. They're the people that do it. They're the people who, who, who are in the arena. They're the people who live and die by the sword. But back to your original point. They have to have a defense mechanism mentally um, to, to deal with it all, I think. And Jonathan, you put a tweet out yesterday, speaking of great legends of the game, about Lee Trevino and wishing you could have seen him play in his prime. He yeah, is such yeah. an amazing talent. Talk about what was so special to you about Lee Trevino. Well, I just love, I study a lot of the old swings and, you know, I remember in that era, I used to watch Lee Torino on TV. He used to play the British Open. I used to watch it on TV. And, um, you know, they used to mock his swing. And, uh, you know, uh, since I've studied science of golf, I use force plates. I use trap man. I use high speed video. I use a lot of fact and evidence stuff. A lot of, and I studied a lot of the physics of the game as well as the art side. We figured that, well, I figured that a lot of what Lee Torino did and does, is so biomechanically pure, it's unbelievable. Like off the scale. If you could have measured him in his prime, he would be like the talisman for what he should be doing. He's got the most amazing side bend going back. He's got it shallow coming down. He's got the best lead side extension and rotation you'll ever see through the ball. He's got a stable trail arm. You know, very Hogan-esque, but mechanically, biomechanically, but obviously Hogan was a lot more, a lot prettier and a lot more normal. Um, but you know, you can learn a ton from Lee Trevino's swing. If you don't watch some, you want to drive it better? You don't watch Lee Trevino drive it. Geez, shallow, the lead side up and out of it. You, you can't really go wrong. Um, so, you know, I'd love to have seen him hit it for sure because he, he looks such a crusher. And obviously I'd love to have seen, uh, Mr. Hogan hit it as well. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things that stood out about that, the way I commented on that thing with Lee Trevino was how much fun he had. You know, obviously, to some people, he talks too much. He'd drive me nuts if I played with him. But, um, you know, just how much fun he had with the game and being in the arena. And, you know, he wasn't, you know, he, he could almost see he knew he was in a great position and it was a privilege to some extent. And he was an entertainer, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, I, I, I really, really stood out to me that what an amazing player he was, what an amazing character he was. And, you know, we, we need those characters in the game, don't we? You know, it makes it interesting. So, you know, a modern character in a different way is Bryson. You know, he's different. He does things differently. You know, he's not gregarious and outgoing like that, but he, he stimulates interest, which Lee Torino did in that era. And, um, you know, we, we need people like that to, to, to keep, to keep people's interest, especially, you know, as, as Tiger's not in the game at the moment and, you know, probably is, is, is on the back nine of his career. And, you know, we need people who, who really, uh, you know, say, stimulate interest, bring, people from the outside in who wouldn't normally come into the game, which is why you know, I think Tiger's greatest legacy was the fact he transcended the game and brought an audience in that wouldn't normally come in. So, yeah, I'd love to have seen Lee Trevino hit it. And, uh, you know, for all you guys who want to go and study a golf stream that's biomechanically pure, go and have a look at that. Jonathan, just a couple more before I let you go, and I want to get a, a couple of playing lessons from you. And the majority of us are out there chasing distance for weekend warriors like me. Is that the right thing for us to be chasing or should we be out there trying to get the ball in the short grass and not trying to worry so much about hitting it further where it might end up in the trees or in the rough? 
Yeah, I mean, again, you can look at stats and things, things like that, but I think as a, and the type of course you play, really, but as a general rule, it's much better hitting it down the fairway, hitting it in the short stuff. Uh, you know, if you can, you know, take some juice out of it and, and just get it down there, you know, it's more enjoyable for a start. You're going to save yourself a fortune on balls. To, secondly, you're going to play faster because you're not searching for your ball. Um, you know, what the pros do compared to what an amateur does are quite different. And I think, you know, many amateurs who try and hit it far, they make a worse golf swing, you know, so they, you know, they rush it from the top and uh, invariably come over the top or get stuck and then they get in some trouble. So, you know, I would suggest maybe you make a smoother transition, you know, look at it as gears in a car almost, you know, you start off in first gear as you move the club away, second gear as you go back, third gear at the top, fourth, a smooth move into fourth coming down and then you whack it into fifth and sixth as you hit it. Um, you know, that's probably a better way to look at it. And, uh, you know, just, just get a, what I call a safe shot, you know, get an emergency shot, what I call a 911. So, you know, you don't feel good that day. You're not driving good that day. What does Tiger do? He hits stingers all day. You know, what's your stinger shot? What's your emergency 911 shot that will punt it down the fairway and get you in play? And, um, you know, what people don't realize is that, you know, even tour players, they have a, an A game, a B game, a C game, and a D game. And, you might not realize it, but any of those four games can show up at any time for any player. So you need a way of managing, you know, when you're not hitting it great, when you're hitting it kind of okay, when you're hitting it average, and when you're hitting it poorly, you need a way of managing that. So, you know, you might develop a, a little start left fade that always finds a fairway off the tee, or you might develop a little draw that starts down the right that you work on that you can, you know, you stand in a certain way and it, it creates the shot that you want. So, you know, I definitely say for in general, uh, for an amateur, you know, get it in the short grass, you know, stop searching people and enjoy it a little bit more. And, uh, you know, just have some fun watching people like Bryson, you know, hit it in a different planet. Jonathan, the, the scariest shot in golf for me is the greenside bunker. How can folks like me get more confidence, hit better shots, is get out on the green and give us an opportunity to save par? versus going in there with the negative thoughts and being afraid of the shots. And then typically we're either blading it way over the green or chunking it, leaving it in the bunker. How can we develop more confidence and get up and down more frequently? Well, it's a tough shot for everybody. There's a couple of ways you can play it. I'll actually, I'll post something on Twitter uh, for you straight after this of how to play a delicate greenside bunker shot, US Open style. That's one way you can do it. It's just it's all about slowing the handle down and releasing the right hand so you increase the dynamic loss. Um, but, you know, for many amateur players, once they get make this really long backswing, they get in a mess coming down and they fatten thin it. So what you can do is create what I call a, a half bunker shot, basically. So you basically get really wide with your stance, lean to the left to create an angle of attack, grip down the club and lock your arms together, really hold it tight. And all you're going to do is, is keep the club, let's say, you know, the, the ball is at six o'clock on a clock face. Um, you're going to keep your arms below nine o'clock and three o'clock. So you're going to make a, a little wide wrist lock, uh, kind of swing where all you're going to do is just turn your rib cage and turn your hips, keeping your arms really locked together. And what that does is that creates what I call a, a, a little kind of C shaped kind of uh, look, which is what actually should happen in a bunker and eliminates the risk getting to it too active, etc. And it's, it's guaranteed to get it out. It works like an absolute charm. Uh, you know, you just lock your arms together, you know, lean left, stand wide, and then just turn your ribs, keeping your arms really locked together. 
and it makes the club skid every single time. It just skids and takes the ball out on a, on a dollar bill of, of sand. And so that's a way of building confidence. And then you can get, you know, then once you've got that confidence, you've got the idea, then you can start gently letting the wrist hinge on the way back and then letting the right hand release on the way through. But I'll post uh, uh, how they do the US Open after this and you can check it out and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tag you on it and uh, the people can go and look at that. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Before I let you go, my friend, remind our listeners how they can see your content every day out there on social media and also stay up to date with your website as well. Uh, yes, all uh, under my name, JonathanYarwood.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, Yarwood, Y-A-R-W-O-D, JonathanYarwood.com. It's my um, um, my uh, website. You can get um, lessons there. I teach people literally all over the world, 53 countries or something I think I've done now, but um, you know, so you can get some online coaching there. Works really well. And then all my social media is at Jonathan Yarwood. Well, Jonathan, I can't thank you enough for giving up uh, your time today and, and coming back and being a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope we get the opportunity to catch up with you again soon. Appreciate it, Chris. Keep up the great work, man. I'm an avid uh, listener to your show. Thanks very much. I appreciate you, Jonathan. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Have a good day. That's one of the top instructors in our game, folks, Jonathan Yarwood, at Jonathan Yarwood on social media. JonathanYarwood.com is the website. And, folks, you got to give this guy a follow. As I said at the top and we discussed, nobody does more with video every single day with tips for how we can improve our golf swing and in different situations, like the bunker shot that Jonathan just talked about, and he's going to post another video on that strategy from tee to green and how to play better and think your way around the golf course. Jonathan is absolutely fantastic. Can't recommend him enough. I hope you'll give him a follow and we get the opportunity to catch up with him again soon.